0: And welcome to episode 1180 of Effectively Wild Fangraphs Baseball Podcast, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. That's Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer over there. He'll say something in a minute. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. That's Ben, he's chuckling. Hi, Ben.
1: Hi, folks. Hello. <laughs> how are how are you? <laughs> I'm doing alright. Are you doing better than Brent Honeywell? Oh man. Yeah. I, I wonder, right. given Brent Honeywell's recent comments and outspoken nature, I wonder, like in the Rays clubhouse, how many of them are upset that Brent Honeywell has a potentially serious forearm slash arm injury and how many are not unhappy that they may not have to spend the season with Brent Honeywell. He's been feuding with Chris Archer, right, which not a great idea for a (laughs) a non-major league pitcher, a prospect, a very promising prospect, but still to... Kind of come after the de facto ace of the team and criticize him for not putting up numbers and not putting up wins and, you know, ERA or whatever numbers. I mean, that never endears you to a team just having been around. An independent league team for a summer. I know that veterans are not really predisposed to enjoy the company of rookies who talk a lot. And Brent Honeywell seems to be one of those. So I would bet that there are some race players who are not entirely displeased that he is getting his comeuppance in some form here. But obviously, a, a potentially devastating injury for the team because he is a very promising pitcher.
0: I would think that, you know, if you're a teammate, even if you kind of smirk. A little bit. You probably don't want him to miss the entire season. He's kind of no. become important for the Rays' hopes. So yeah, I can see that. Maybe they'd want him to get like a, a scare. Maybe get pushed back a month or something. Right. He has a just a regular strain, and and maybe you just like when he comes back, you just kind of like hit him in the face a couple times, and then it's and then everything's. <laughs> everything's fine but yeah it's it's really bad well it would be bad timing for anyone but for the rays in particular you trade jaco to rizzi because you think that you have rotation depth and the rays yeah. still do have depth but honeywell is their best pitching prospect he could conceivably it's unlikely but by the end of the year he could be their best pitcher and he's kind of a big part of the plan here so even though i don't want to jump to conclusions here we don't know what is actually happening with him but we can make some educated guesses he will miss at least a somewhat significant amount of time i have to think especially missing this part of spring training But if he's going to take a step back here and not pitch for some of the season, if not all of the season, then the Rays' competitive standing looks a lot worse than I thought it did after losing Longoria, after losing Dickerson. After losing Odorizzi, I thought and after losing Souza, I thought they could recover from all of those, but Honeywell it would be a pretty significant loss.
1: Yeah. I, you kind of feel for a team when something like this happens, where it seems almost like they construct an entire offseason around a player or counting on a player. I mean, you, you have to do that to some extent. Like, I mean, I, I'll see some people say, you know, I saw someone talking recently about like what will happen to the Yankees if Gary Sanchez goes down or something. They don't have a great backup catcher. Well, No, uh most teams wouldn't be able to fill in for the absence of a, a star like that. There's only so much depth you can have. And this kind of reminds me of like when the Mariners sort of built their off season around Drew Smiley to an extent and made a <laughs> whole like sequence of trades to land him. And then he never ended up pitching for the Mariners. And obviously, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could say the Mariners built their whole off season this time around Shoei Otani and they didn't even get him. Yeah too right i mean yeah it's it's difficult to count on a pitcher i mean just uh, the next pitch that a pitcher throws can just derail an entire orchestrated plan that was sort of the centerpiece of your winter. So particularly for the Rays that obviously you know either can't or won't spend on their payroll and thus rely on a lot of production coming from pre-arb and arbitration eligible players for them to have someone who potentially offers a, a ton of surplus value. Just have that wiped out or at least postponed is pretty devastating.
0: I think this is why it remains true that, you know, people will ask every so often, is it better to have one superstar player or two pretty good above average players? And this is why one isn't really that much better than the other, because, of course, if you have, let's call them six win player and three. 2 3 win players and if you have 2 3 win players well that uh, that spreads the the wealth now if you have the 6 win player then you could say well then it's not so hard to go out and get somebody decent for the other spot and then you can do better but when you concentrate that much talent in one guy this is this is the downside this is nothing nothing new but this is why team uh, players at the upper end of the spectrum don't get by a factor of 2 or 3 more money when they're available than players who are half as good. This just it's not how it works out because the injury risk is real. Of course, it's more real for a, a starting pitcher than it is for a position player. And, you know, Mike Trout doesn't have the injury risk that Brent Honeywell does. But just last season, Mike Trout got injured. So there is mm-hmm. a downside to having really great players. And it's that when the great players get injured, unless you're this year's Astros, you can't really recover from it very well.
1: Yeah. And so we can kind of close the book on this week in Ray's transactions. There's been a new one to talk about every day, but I think the one that was most mystifying to people was designating Corey Dickerson for assignment, which obviously didn't mean they were just getting rid of him. It meant that they were exploring ways to get rid of him and get something back, which they did. So now Corey Dickerson is a pittsburgh pirate so now that we can sort of appraise this whole sequence of moves in concert have you we've talked about the rays really in the last couple episodes but does the completion of the dickerson saga clarify anything
0: What's a little weird for me is that they traded Dickerson and his nearly $6 million for Daniel Hudson and a prospect, and Hudson is getting $5.5 million this year. Now, the Pirates are including $1 million, but just means that there's not actually that significant cost saving. I expected Dickerson to just go away, and then he would be traded Mm -hmm. for a prospect or two. I wasn't expecting an expensive big leaguer to come back. But Daniel Hudson is, I mean, we've, he, Daniel Hudson, if you remember, like everyone in Major League Baseball is interesting and Daniel Hudson is only a few years removed from being a really interesting guy because now he just feels like, oh, he's just a 30-year-old, whatever, middle reliever. But he's got his own like comeback story and he throws three pitches now and he throws his fastball like 96 miles per hour and He's gotten strikeouts with the Pirates. He's gotten strikeouts with the Diamondbacks. He's walked a few too many guys. His numbers aren't great, but the Rays seem to see something. Already I've seen a couple articles about how the Rays see something. They can just make a few adjustments and Daniel Hudson can be one of the best pitchers in their bullpen. But, you know, this is what baseball is now. We don't even know what pitchers are anymore because teams just have different plans for them. The Rays are certainly one of them.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, so we have a preview podcast to get to. We are going to be talking to Mark Craig about the New York Yankees and then Brittany Droley about the Baltimore Orioles. Coincidentally, two AL East teams and two teams that were the subject of a post of yours today. You wrote about how they are both projected to break the all-time home run record, which is actually really interesting. I mean, on the one hand, sure, you'd expect that sort of record to be broken. We've seen lots of home run records broken. It is the highest home run era ever. On the other hand, not used to seeing all-time records projected to be broken generally projections come off as kind of conservative because a record breaking performance tends to be one where someone exceeds expectations or a bunch of things break a certain way and there's luck in the favor of the team or the player that breaks the record and in this case no it's just the the baseline projection Seemingly with luck stripped out, says that both the Yankees and the Orioles are going to exceed the all-time home run record, which was set by your team, the Mariners.
0: Yep, it's wild. Nineteen ninety-seven Seattle Mariners hit two hundred and sixty-four home runs. Almost won them an ALDS. Didn't they were <laughs> disappointing? But so that, that mark of two hundred and sixty-four has stood for twenty years, twenty-one years, whatever. And uh and now the Yankees are projected to hit two hundred and sixty-nine home runs. That's an estimate based on playing time, and of course the estimated projections, and the Orioles are projected to hit two hundred and sixty-seven home runs. So, like you just said, it's crazy to have two teams projected to break. A record that just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But in 1997, the average baseball team hit 166 home runs. This year, the average baseball team is projected to hit 198 home runs. And last year, the average baseball team hit 204 home runs. So really, this is like pretty obviously, this is a function of two things. You've got two powerful teams and you know, rising tides and boats and all that stuff. So it's easier to set a new home run record than it would have been back then. But yeah, the Yankees are very clearly top heavy. I think the Orioles are easier to overlook because, well, they're not the Yankees, they're the Orioles. But they have eight players projected to hit at least 20 home runs this season, which is (laughs) a lot. The Yankees only have five. Now, the Yankees also have like two of the top three projected home run hitters in baseball, and that's what everyone talks about. But Everyone on the Orioles can hit the ball out of the yard. They can't can't really do a whole lot else, but they can they can hit home runs.
1: Right. Yeah. Both projected to be record breakers. Only one projected to be good overall, and <laughs> even like good offensively. <laughs> Just yeah. And I, I
0: should say there's there's another plot in that post that uh, that shows projected batting runs versus average, and you know the Astros are projected to be easily the best offense again because they're great. The Royals are terrible. <laughs> they they're projected to be like 150 runs worse than average batting, which is like 50 or 60 runs worse than the next worst team. And they're like, oh, we don't want to sign Mike Moustakas. and Oh, we don't want to sign Logan Morrison. Well, You can't hit at all. There's no, <laughs> the team is very bad. And I know that you can't sign like Mike Mustakas and say oh, this team could make the playoffs because they're bad. But there is value in not being this bad. They're yeah. very bad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking about parallels between the Royals and the Orioles because the Orioles are kind of getting to that point as we're going to talk to Brittany about they they have a bunch of free agents kind of uh, who are going to hit the market at the same time and bring an end to this era of Orioles baseball and haven't really seemed to lay any groundwork to prepare for that by by having a, a new generation of players brought along. So sort of in similar places unfortunately for them so we will get to those previews one quick note yesterday on the email show we answered a, a question from a listener who asked us what the best baby names would be or just best person names because babies eventually become adults but Most the, of the time. yeah well hopefully they do that's the idea but the best names based on baseball teams just you know what would be the best names that are also the names of baseball teams so take Harry in the Facebook group posted a picture of his yearbook, his high school class in suburban Los Angeles in the mid-1970s. And there's a girl right in the middle of this picture with the ultimate baseball name, Dodger Cardinal. (laughs) That's her name. (laughs) I want to know the backstory, Dodger Cardinal, if you're out there, if anyone knows Dodger Cardinal. I want to know if this is actually a baseball name, if it's some kind of improbable coincidence if there was a Cardinals fan in the family, if it's a Dodgers slash Cardinals fan family that wanted to pay tribute to both teams, I want to know how this name came about and what it's been like to live as Dodger Cardinal. We also got an email from listener Shane, who says, Near the end of the 2012 season, my wife and I were watching the Rangers and the A's. We were pregnant with our fifth child and had not come up with a name. I suggested we name the child after the next batter. His name was Chris something, but that was boring. My parents were watching with us, and my dad jokingly said we should name the child Ranger. We liked the name and also gave him my dad's middle name. At the time, the Rangers were my second favorite team, the Astros being my favorite. It is interesting to note how since the Astros moved to the AL, the rivalry has strengthened between the two clubs. I do not have much affinity for the Rangers any longer, but I do love my Ranger Wilford. That's a good call. Once you get to the fifth kid, you've already used your four favorite names. Might as well just pick a baseball team.
0: We didn't even consider the the possibility of old-timey names that don't exist anymore, like Spider or Bean <laughs> right. Eater. <There's>, yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's a tab here on baseball. I'm not going to go down the entire list, but like Gladiator was the name of a team in 1890. So The Brooklyn Wards Wonders. I don't know if that's Brooklyn Ward or Brooklyn Ward's Wonders, where wards is a possessive. I probably shouldn't do this just on the podcast. Oh, yeah, because here, right here, there's Cincinnati Kelly's Killers. What was happening in baseball in the late 19th century? Anyway, yeah. uh, there's also, oh, fittingly, in 1890, there were the Cleveland Infants. uh good name yes, for a baby. that's a good one. The infant. Yeah,
1: the Brooklyn Bridegrooms. That's a good one. Yep. Yeah, yep. That's, uh, that's
0: a good one. Terrapin probably has been a first name. I am going to stop doing this because there's a lot of teams that don't exist anymore. You could have the the ham fighters, even though I know that's not accurate. Right. I will say uh, on a separate note, but because I just wanted to throw it in here while I could, that uh, it was last week that everyone started to report to spring training and all the optimism builds. And it's just it fountains. It overflows. Everyone is hopeful. Even the White Sox could win 80-some games, according to yep. Jason Benetti, who's lost his mind. But <laughs> if you look now at the headlines... Brent Honeywell is injured. Chris Young is injured. Austin Barnes is dealing with elbow discomfort. Erasmo Ramirez has a lat strain and saw Matt Chapman is getting an MRI. This is the time of spring when players (laughs) start getting injured. Everyone shows up in great shape and then they fall by the wayside. And in this way, I think spring training is it's kind of like spring training also for our psychology, because this is what the regular season is. You go in really hopeful and then things can almost only go wrong. Yeah. One team is left standing and the Astros will never lose again.
1: Yeah. You know, you can find a quote from a player on every single team about why that team is going to win and why it's going to contend. Maybe, I mean, it's becoming more common to hear like a front office or a GM say or essentially acknowledge that a team's not going to contend, but players are eternally optimistic slash diluted so you can always find someone who thinks that their team is going to contend but yeah spring training it starts and it's exciting and then it just becomes this war of attrition really where you just hope that you're not going to wake up and read one of these headlines you just want to fast forward through all of this and get to opening day with your roster intact because at this point most teams hardly have position battles anymore. I mean, I don't know what the average is, but it's got to be like at least 23 players or something on every team. Generally, you know what the opening day roster is going to look like. So you just have to hope that you can get through the seven weeks or whatever it is without losing somebody important in a game that is not at all important.
0: Related to that optimism, I've always wondered, never having been a major league player before, uh, clearly, if you are a major league player, you are great. You are amazing at baseball. And there are, of course, degrees of being amazing. But we're looking at the players who are already like five standard deviations better than the mean. So I wonder how obvious differences in talent are when you're just surrounded. And I I wonder if this might be why, like if you have a team like the Marlins, they say, oh, we could surprise some people because everyone at Marlins camp is elite at baseball. And so I just wonder how visible the difference is between like I don't know Justin Bohr or J T Riddle and like a I don't know a better player I don't have names <laughs> off the top of my head but like I I know that there are certain guys like if you watch Joey Votto or or Mike Trout you can see them do things that like clearly most players can't do but the, those are the extraordinary players and if you if you're comparing like Magnuris Sierra against an average right fielder how how obvious is that difference and I genuinely don't know maybe players have such skilled eyes that they can absolutely tell but otherwise I would think that if you're someone in like Orioles camp the numbers say that the team isn't very good but how visible is the difference of like 15 or 20 projected wins when you're actually on the field and, and I just don't
1: know yeah hey, the Marlins have Cameron Mabin now an outfielder I've heard of so things are, are <laughs> looking up so. bad
0: for that Rafael Ortega pick
1: yeah I know all right. Well, on that note and on the injury note, I'm just reading a story now about how Bill Gates endorsed trampolines, and it's just more more red meat for us. He says that we have a trampoline room in our house. The kids like that. An indoor trampoline. I recommend it. Bill Gates, smart guy. Amazing that you can amass close to $100 billion and still have such just ill-informed opinions about trampolines. Bill Gates hates his kids. <laughs> that's the only conclusion we can draw from those comments.
0: I think we forgot the note the other day. Uh, Eric Hosmer signed for 144. And what did MLB trade rumors have? 132?
1: Oh, yeah. I think, right, you uh, you added to that too, right? I think right, you're, I you're running think away with this your thing ass, now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you are. Just
0: pending Moustakas. Oh, my
1: goodness. Oh, jeez. That's going to be carnage for me. <laughs> All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with Mark Grigg to talk about the New York Yankees. We are joined now by mark rigg whose life is going through a lot of changes lately on the personal <laughs> side he has a new baby daughter he has not slept in several days it seems and on the professional side he is sort of switching beats he is one of the many new additions to the athletic in his case the athletic nyc He will be covering mostly the Yankees with a bit of Mets after some years covering the Mets primarily, so he's pulling off the reverse Andy McCullough, I guess, and we are (laughs) having him on now if he can stay awake long enough to talk to us to cover the New York Yankees. Hey, Mark, how are you?
2: Man, I'm I'm really sad that you dropped Andy McCullough's name in there (laughs) because that just means I'm going to have a couple of texts from him when he hears this later <laughs> on about
1: how I'm following his footsteps so, that's right you know good times
2: maybe
1: I know he is listening to the series just to remember who plays baseball because I think he forgot over the off season. so <laughs> I, I'm always curious about switching beats I guess in your case it's less disruptive in that you're not actually changing cities but still I mean after how many years were you on the Mets beat several years right Yeah, it was five. Right, Mm -hmm. and Yankees fans who haven't read your work are in for a treat. You're a a great beat writer, but I wonder, you know, you develop these relationships with players, with front office people, with other reporters. How much of that transfers over to a new beat? Like, do you feel like you're the new guy and you're having to learn the ropes, or do you still sort of feel like a, a veteran?
2: You know, it's kind of both. Especially in this case, because my job before covering the Mets was covering the Yankees. Right. You know, I was there for three and a half, four years. So, a lot of those relationships I had from that first time around, a lot of those guys are still there. You know, Brian Cashman is still the GM. <laughs> yes. Michael Fishman is, you know, moved up to the AGM. Mm-hmm. Gene Afterman is still there, and on and on and on. So Jim Hendry, uh, who was there when I was there, like there's, there's got a bunch of people that are still involved uh, even in the coaching staff. So, um, and a few of the players, actually. It's mm-hmm. funny because I saw David Robertson at an event the other day and we we're joking about how we've done the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's right. Be on the Yankees, take off, come back. So, <laughs> um, it, it's uh, it's good. I, I, I think it's, so it's a little of both. You, at the same time, you are the new person. You know, you're, you're having to learn four mm-hmm. or five years of history, basically, and, you know, get up to speed on a bunch of things. So, which I kind of, I, I kind of find a lot of fun. And but when you change beats, you know, I think every time you, you cover a year in baseball it's those are things that you can take with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like if I need Perspective on certain things. There's still people on, on, you know, the Mets side that I feel like I could lean upon mm-hmm. to help me see some things. Uh, there's scouts certainly that actually cover both teams, and so you know I'm in contact with them anyway, and you know that, that's still the case. You know, in fact, when when the Drury trade went down, I you was know, hearing from a lot of the folks that I would you know be hearing from if if it was a Mets deal that I was asking about. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there is a lot of transfer, but. At the same time, <clears throat> even with my familiarity with the Yankees, being from back in the day, it's still feeling like you're the new guy. So
0: it's kind of fun. Are you uh, are you prepared to retransition from I would look I don't live in New York. I don't live close to New York, but I have an understanding of, of how the fan bases are and the Mets are kind of defined by their I don't know, <laughs> fatalistic resignation and the Yankees fans have that annual burden of impossibly high expectations. So are you do you to what extent do you have to think about when, when you're writing, considering with the sort of audience dynamic versus just, I'm writing about a baseball team and you can respond to it however you want to respond to it. I think it's huge, especially here.
2: You know, what you described about Mets fans thats dead-on, the repeated trauma is what I like to call it. Like, I mean, it's just trauma over and over and over again. And certainly there's a, uh, you know, I hate to use this word because it's just baseball, okay? Like, it's fun, but there's a sensitivity that I think that, any journalist should have about any topic they're writing about. You should be considering who's reading it. So I know Met fans, like, it'd be so easy to troll those people. It really would, because (laughs) they're so mad all the time. But what I think was my favorite thing about covering the Mets is dealing with them and learning about them and learning about that mentality and then, you know, having to adjust to that, which was a huge adjustment, by the way, because... Having covered the Yankees for all the time, you're, you're writing for an audience that is used to winning all the time. And, you know, those folks are looking for perfection. Uh, whereas Met fans, I think have been conditioned for imperfection for all these years. So yeah, there is a difference, uh, when you write for those two different audiences. And it's funny because in my current job, I'm mostly doing Yankee stuff. I'm still keeping a hand on the Met stuff. But I noticed on my Twitter feed, there's people having a hard time reconciling that. You know, there's a lot of Yankee fans that kind of stuck with me through the years. They're happy to have me back. But these Mets fans, are, they're mad. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> left. And, you know, and, and they don't want to hear anything about the Yankee stuff. And even if I have some Mets insight on there that they'll appreciate, uh, they just don't like hearing about the other team. And I think that is most definitely a product of what we've been talking about as far as mentality and. All that. So I've actually been trying to figure out, well, how does that work? You know, do, do I have like what I'm like working about this place or working at this place? So that things kind of evolve. I wonder, like, is it even possible to do both teams, or do you have to pick a side? Mm-hmm. And it gets back to your original point. You know, the audiences are just so different. They're unique. They've got their quirks. Uh, and I think if you're going to be a good beat writer, you have to try to figure those out. Yeah. you know, gotta learn learn how to adjust for that for sure.
1: So you mentioned that the GM hasn't changed. You could have been on the Yankees beat 20 years ago and the GM wouldn't have changed because Brian Cashman Mm -hmm. just recently celebrated. I assume he celebrated. I don't know what he did, but he just had his (laughs) 20th anniversary as Yankees GM, which obviously is amazing in this market or anywhere for that matter at this point. And he signed a five-year extension in December. So there's no end in sight. I mean, how, how can you imagine Cashman's tenure coming to an end? Someday it will. I mean, will he get sick of it? Will it take the Yankees being bad for a number of years, which seems like it's not going to happen anytime soon? Would it require the Steinbrenners selling the team or so Is this just like a lifetime appointment at this point?
2: Yeah, I, I think... All those things, really. Number one, I think Cashman himself would have to be burned out by it. Yeah, And certainly, you know, when you do 20 years here, there's a toll, right? There's most definitely a toll, not just professionally, but personally and all that stuff. So, and because he's worked in New York for that long, I mean, this guy's found himself on page six. Yeah, All right, like he's been through that personal ringer here. That stuff takes a toll. Working all those years under the school of Steinbrenner, that stuff takes a toll you wonder how he's been able to get through it. I think, you know, having covered him the first time, so I always thought about, was like, how did this guy get through all of this nonsense? Because <laughs> there's just so much of it. But you, you see that he's been schooled in the game. Brian Cashman is a brilliant people person, I think, above all. I think that's what keeps him here, and that's what will keep him here for as long as he chooses to be here. You know, I think he values, you know, diversity of voices, and I think that's something that gets said a lot. But, I don't know if it's necessarily put into practice a lot in baseball, I think more so now than ever before, but still, uh, folks tend to go back to the ideas they're most comfortable with. And I like, you know, I like studying cash in that way because he seems to run the other direction. Uh, he's not afraid to, you know, invite different ideas and different viewpoints in, even if they challenge the things that he's held dear for a long, long time. So again, though, all of that takes such a huge toll and mentally, physically, uh, emotionally even, you know, and and I think it's really the most remarkable thing about his tenure here is how he's been able to manage all of that. But yeah, uh, he's, to to me, it's essentially a lifetime appointment. Either he gets tired of it and wants to try something else or the Steinbrenner sell, which is really hard to see (laughs) since, you know, they're, they're just so, well, I mean, it's the most valuable baseball team on planet earth. So I, I just don't see any reason they would do that. So yeah, it's essentially a lifetime appointment. And, I think on many levels, the guy guy has earned it. You know, it's impressive. It seems like he's getting more due for the work he's done recently. But I think even before this, I I think he's always been one of the best GMs in baseball and, and for the reasons we've talked about. So it's, it is a lifetime appointment. a great way to put it.
0: The Yankees last year, obviously, were very good. They nearly made the World Series. This year, they project to be very good. And in the recent Baseball America organizational talent rankings, the Yankees also ranked number two. There might not be a team that is better set up for short, medium, and long-term success than the Yankees. So you're coming back into this beat sort of... A year late in that you miss the the year where the Yankees are like fun and a little bit lovable, because, you know, that's gone. But can the Evil Empire Yankees ever re-exist now that they are no longer the team that's way out there spending more than every other team? Of course, now their payroll is lower than the Red Sox, it's lower than the Giants, it's lower than the Dodgers. You know, they're because of the competitive balance sacks, other teams have caught up or even surpassed the Yankees. Now we'll see what happens next year, but is that is that reputation from 10, 20 years ago just so cemented in that the Yankees are always going to be that team that everyone hates the most? Or is, is, are they just going to be another big-budget team, and can they sort of, uh, I don't know, blend in with the other evils, I guess? To what extent are the Yankees <laughs> going to be outstandingly evil moving forward?
2: Well, let's put it this way. Like, let's look at the last month leading up to spring training. Who's perpetuated that return to evil more than anybody else? The New York Yankees. CC <laughs> Sabathia is going on there talking about crushing teams. You know, Giancarlo Stanton is talking about. I feel sorry for the baseballs. You know, like Cashman. All these they they are all perpetuating this. So the Yankees get it. This is part of their brand. So yeah, there might be people that spend more than them. And certainly, the, the the economics of the game and and essentially the salary cap. You know, that's what it is, right? It's a salary cap. So there's a salary cap in baseball. And and therefore, it's not going to be quite the same as it was back in the day where the Yankees could just spend whatever they wanted and and beat people up financially. But that said, I think they understand that part of that evil empire stuff is kind of the brand. And therefore, they sort of embrace it and actually go beyond that. They use it as part of their promotion. And if you listen to the players, you listen to the executives and how they sort of treat this thing. It's so embedded in there that it's not going away. And, and the other part of that, too, is that, you know, yeah, they've capped the way you can spend on your roster. But these guys are also spending so much on analytics. These guys are, you know, paying their staff really well. They're competing and using that financial leverage in different ways that might not be as obvious. It might not be as severe as they would on players, obviously, because the numbers are so big. But you know what? They're pouring all they can into, like, the, the analytic side of it even. So if you look at it that way, they're still, in, in many ways, the evil empire. You know, it's going to work for Google if if you're working for them. <laughs> so I don't think that'll ever change.
0: Of course, right now, we one of the reasons the off season was slow is because the Yankees were trying to get under that tax threshold, and so were the Dodgers, but... You also, we never in the public get to see actual team revenues. We only have, of course, the broad estimates, but there, there's probably no team in North America who makes more money than the Yankees do, so they've spread the idea they're trying to get below the, the threshold, and of course they have gotten below the threshold. They're comfortably below now, and they're likely to spend a lot next offseason, but how important do you think it, it would really be for the Yankees to stay under the threshold? Because of course there are... It's not just a matter of money. There are draft pick considerations and international money considerations if a team blows the luxury tax threshold away. But do you feel like the Yankees really need to be quite as, I don't know, austere, I guess, as as they've been?
2: No. (laughs) No, I don't. Um, In fact, I think there – I read something relatively recently about what the cost would be if they were to just say the hell with this and, and, you know, spend whatever they want. And, you know, it – this is easy to say because it's not my money, but it didn't look like it was insane. And certainly, you know, these guys, they always say, this is a classic Yankees thing. Oh, we're going to get under the tax and get under the tax, blah, 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 blah. They start slowly and the Red Sox go nuts. I think all bets are off. All right. I, I really do. I, I, I think these guys always have that propensity in them to channel a little bit of old George. And I think it's what makes them fascinating. They're like a lean machine in a lot of ways. All right, They spend money in places that are going to make them money in others. That's why they pour money into the coaching and analytics and all that stuff. They attract a bunch of brain power in there because they know that while it costs money to do that, it's going to make them money in the long run. It, it's a, they're a good business. But I think also good mis- businesses know that you know it, when it makes sense to veer from your plan, you do it. And so I do believe they're trying to get under this tax. I do believe that it's important to them. But I also do believe that they're smart enough to veer if they've got a veer. And if the Red Sox come out here and they're world beaters and and they start kind of meh, I think you're going to see one of these pitchers end up here, for instance, even if it pushes them over, if if it has to get to that point. You know, that sort of thing, I think, is always a possibility with the Yankees. You know, Um, just the other day was talking about, oh, we're fine with our pitching. Well, you look at it. I mean, any baseball person looks at it. There's weaknesses there in the starting pitching. You can make a good argument that they need to supplement that just for the sake of being deep enough to get through the rigors of a season. So as much as they say we're fine with it, I don't believe it because they're always truly looking to get better. And I think they are smart enough to know when it's time to kind of go against what they've been saying publicly. So I never rule out, you know, things like busting through that luxury tax threshold when it comes to the Yankees because that is also part of their DNA. They're going to do what it takes. And I think that's what makes them always fascinating to watch.
1: Yeah, they've certainly blown right by that number in the past after saying that they would stay under it. Although I guess the the penalties have increased in the years since then. So for a team that is really good, that had a great lineup last year, that will probably have a great lineup again, there is a fair amount of uncertainty about who will play where. In some cases, that's because there are too many good players, seemingly, but in others, it's kind of the opposite question. So maybe we can take with the outfield first and then move On to the infield. How is this whole outfield DH rotation going to work? Do you think you obviously have two of the best right fielders in baseball on the same roster now? Then you have Jacoby Ellsbury still sort of sitting there (laughs) untraded. And you have Aaron Hicks, who is probably the guy who's most capable of playing center, but probably the least capable player all around. So, how do they find playing time for? everyone and put the best defensive alignment out there as well
2: well i I think the dh certainly will help get those bats in the lineup so that'll be a part of it and in fact when cashman was doing the legwork for this Stanton trade and they were kind of down the tracks on it he made it a point to get aaron judge on the phone he made it a point to be talking to stanton directly about the fact that they're going to have to do some sharing in that outfield and that also included playing some dh so I think those guys seem to be on board and and what you're going to see in spring training is essentially seeing, you know, who's cool with doing what. And that sounds simple because it is, but it also takes some time. That's why we're, you know, spring training will be kind of important from that regard. You you just never know some guys like will have a really difficult time DHing, and they don't know that until they're trying it, you know? So I think that would be interesting from the Stanton perspective is how much can he actually, you know, feel like he can you know, do what he does without being in the field, you know, after all those years in the National League. And uh, that's not necessarily the easiest transition. So, you know, playing left field, same kind of deal. You know, it seems like easy enough. You're flipping sides. You know, you're still an outfielder. It's short to throw. Uh, but there are differences, especially in a place like Yankee Stadium. So there's going to be some trial and error period there where, where I think the Yankees are figuring out what these guys actually can do. I think they've got a sense of what they're willing to do, uh, but this spring training now becomes about what it is they can actually do. So it'll be important from that regard. You know, Ellsbury is an interesting case. You know, it, it's just such a misfit on the roster, considering yeah. how it's built. But that said, you know, Stanton's a guy that obviously has had trouble staying on the field. So having that kind of depth is, is not the worst thing. I mean, yeah, obviously I think they'd deal him, If they could, you know, having covered the Mets last year, this is sort of like the Jay Bruce situation. They'd have happily dealt him last year. He ended up being a huge piece for them because guys got hurt. So I think talking to Yankees folks, there's still some element of that in the back of their heads too. They'd like to move him. But if you don't, you know, you could certainly do a lot worse, you know, than have Jacoby Ellsbury come in there and, and take those plate appearances and play those innings.
1: Yeah. And so transitioning to the infield, obviously the Brandon Jury trade changed things. You have young guys who are available at both second and third, the Yankees' top prospects. And recently, Brian Cashman said that service time is not part of his evaluation process. A lot of teams say that. Not every team actually means it or acts that way. So... What do you think happens here? How does the playing time break out in these two positions over the course of the year, and maybe on opening day?
2: Well, I think Drury's in there playing third base.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I think Torres has a chance to win that job at second, but you know, I think that Drury move is huge, and I think it was illustrative. Number one, okay, service time. Of course, they're going to have to say that about service time. Even the Yankees are not going to go out there and, you know, they're not going to be like, ah, oh, we're trying to suppress that time. <laughs> Take another year. I mean, they're not going to say yeah. that, you know. Now push comes to shove, I think they would do it. All right, if Anderhar were the answer, right? Let, let's say he just goes nuts, and he's and also on top of that, he's, he's defensively he's much better. You know, there's some concern about that, you know. Then all right, why not? You know, Torres same thing. Why not? Why not? But I think they position themselves to be able to like not have to burn those years, right? Still have major league caliber player. I think the Drury move shows that this is a good player. He's Someone you know, and that they've had, they've seen something in this guy. And you talk to scouts, I think it's a lot of the same thing. There's folks that believe around baseball, there's a lot more pop in that bat than, than he's shown so far. I mean, he's always been an offensive player, but you know, I think people are intrigued by what would happen if he played some more, made some tweaks to his swing, because they think they've got the raw tools in there uh, to hit for more power. Um, you know, which would be kind of a big deal for them, you know, especially playing at third base. So certainly, Drury buys them time. Um, they've also got some veteran guys in there, like non-roster invite type of guys that, um, you know, uh, are sort of perfect for this situation because if they play well, make the opening day roster, even start at second base, let's say, if they're easily disposable, when Glibert is ready to go, uh, they'll pass whatever that April date is, let's say. So the typical Yankees move, they cover themselves by getting Drury, gives them much more choices, gives them more control over the timing of things. And I think that was kind of the whole point of the whole, whole transaction and a uh, smart move for them.
0: When Ben and I were talking yesterday, we talked a little bit how, at least uh, from my perspective, I pretty much never think about managers anymore. It just doesn't even come up. doesn't cross my mind. But if there's one manager or managing situation this offseason that is interesting, it's that a team like the Yankees did go out and hire a manager like Aaron Boone. So what... What do you think that that hiring says about at least how the Yankees look at the managerial role in 2018, even in such a gigantic and and stressful media market? Well, let's
2: start with that. Uh, Media market. What do the last three Yankees managers have in common? Joe Girardi, Joe Torre, and now Aaron Boone. They all had TV on their resume before they got that job. And if you watch Aaron Boone give a press conference, he looks like a guy who's been in front of a camera for a couple of years. And around here, that's important. You know, I think it's important everywhere. When you think about it, the manager of a baseball team is the primary spokesman of that entire organization. They talk to the public more than any player. They talk to the public more than the GM. They certainly talk to the public more than the owner. They're there twice a day, every day, from now until October. That is a lot. So I think teams are wisely factoring that into the calculations. You can't just have the tobacco-spitting baseball guy that scratches himself and can't use four-syllable words in that job anymore because uh, there's TV cameras in that office or in that press conference room before and after every game for months and months and months. And they are your primary organizational spokesman. So I think with Boone, it's obvious, right? Like, I, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to watch some of these pressers to start with, but he's smooth. He gets the message out. Um, he's going to be fine, I think, at putting fires out when things go wrong because he's so smooth at it. So when I look at that hire, I, I really believe that's part of it. And you know, also a younger guy. And, and you see that trending younger in managers' offices. And I think a lot of that has to do with this. I, you know, again, this is such a simple idea, but like, you know, those guys have got to connect with players. And, you know, he's not that far removed from playing. So I think that's an advantage, uh, especially with the composition of this clubhouse. So, you know, managers aren't the dictators they used to be, but like they're still important. You know, it's just something in the middle there. They're not, you know, obviously we know that managers in baseball, it's not like they're head coaches in football where some scheme or whatever is going to have huge impact on the actual play of the game. That's not the case. And even here, like with the Yankees, the bullpen is tremendous, right? They've got all these great pieces. And now you've got Aaron Boone, a first-year manager, has never run a bullpen before. Supposed to run a bullpen, but the way they've got it set up here is that's really, really Larry Rothschild's job as a pitching coach. You know, he's almost like a defensive coordinator. So even that part where, uh, you know, there is actually a lot of management decisions that will have an impact on the field. That's being delegated to somebody who's got more experience. So I think they put him in a position to succeed, right? Like they've they've got. A veteran guy, Larry Rothschild, is his pitching coach still there? You know, Harky, the bullpen coach is still there. These guys have relationships with those with those guys. I think Boone's strengths are going to come out though. He's good at managing the message, and that's going to be important. You saw it last year. You know, know, points in Joe Girardi's tenure, where even with his experience on the media side of it, there were times where he didn't manage the situation very well, and it spiraled. You know, it became a distraction. The stuff with uh, Sanchez last year, even if he's probably right about that tough love, talking about that defense behind the plate, you know, it raised your eyebrows because of the way it was handled. And, you know, things like that happen everywhere, but they tend to get magnified here. So having a guy like Boone, who is good in front of that camera, is no small thing.
1: You mentioned the bullpen. Of course, it's incredible. We saw how potent it could be in the playoffs last year. Chad Green was a big part of that. And we heard Brian Cashman say in November, at least, that he would be coming to spring training as a starter, barring injury Do you think that there is anything to that? I mean, not that he couldn't have success in that role. He has had some success in that role, but he was just such an unbelievable weapon out of the bullpen that he may be just as valuable in that role. So do you think this is just sort of lip service or is there a real chance that he ends up working out of the rotation this year?
2: You know, I think if they have to do it, then yeah. But, you know, it's my understanding that I don't even think he's prepped that much as a starter to this point. I think mean, Warren has, but not necessarily green. And, you know, I think that's in recognition of the fact uh, of what you've talked about, the work he did in the bullpen. Um, it's also, by the way, kind of, you know, he's exactly the guy I was thinking about when we were talking about the starting pitching earlier and maybe supplementing it. I don't think they want to move him out of that role. He was so good in it and you need guys like that with that kind of versatility too when you can deploy them so I think the Yankees bullpen last year through the fourth highest you know bullpen innings in their franchise history there's a chance that even goes up this year and you know if you look at just how starters are being used now there's a really good chance it goes up this year even if their guys stay healthy so if that's the case and it certainly looks like it's going to be where those guys are carrying a heavier workload than having a guy like Green in that role becomes that much more valuable. So, yeah, I think certainly he's a guy that gives them a choice if they've got to go that direction for the rotation, but I think they understand his importance in that bullpen, and it's probably the role you're going to see him in moving forward.
0: It's sort of related to that, the, the Yankees' deep bullpen and, and the uh, high-leverage fireman reliever role. I know the Yankees have a few options, but down the stretch last year and certainly in the playoffs, we did see the Yankees and Joe Girardi uh, seemingly lose faith in in Dylan Batansis. and I know you weren't covering the Yankees so much at that point. But you know you've been around them now, and I know going into the off season, it it felt to me like Batansis was almost the game's most obvious trade candidate. It seemed like he might have just lost whatever faith that uh, he had from the organization. But clearly he's stuck around. Maybe some of that is having a, a new manager and a fresh start. But what has been your sense so far, at least, of, of the Yankees and Betances relationship? Because it's been strained on more than one occasion.
2: Yeah, you know, I think with Betances, it's sort of like anything else. Once you've, you've gone down the track and you're at the point where, you know, you're near a natural separation point, you just sort of roll with it. And I think that may be the case of Betances here. So, um, you know, obviously you're making reference to like the, the back and forth with arbitration and all that, you know, that became a public spectacle. But and certainly, the you know, struggle this year, you know, it was really kind of stunning, considering the dominance he'd seen from him before. But you know, he's always been one of these guys. He's such a big guy that it doesn't take much mechanically to have something, you know, get off kilter. Now, the flip side of that is you can also see it where it doesn't take that much to get him back on track either. And if you do that, he's such a strong weapon for them, uh, and they're such a good physician. Like I, I, even if that one depends, it doesn't untangle the mess than he was last year. This bullpen is still, you know, one of the strongest ones in baseball without him, all right? So with him, they're just that much better. I just think that it makes too much sense for them to, you know, let them try to work this thing out because there is still some, you know, I think plenty of upside there. I think it's certainly not insane to expect him to snap back into form because, again... Uh, He's one of those guys who mechanically, I I feel like, while it's easy for him to get off track, it's also easy for him to get back on track. So at this point, you've gone down the tracks with this relationship for so long, might as well see it through until the natural separation point point reaches free agency.
1: So as amazing as it's going to be to watch Stanton and Judge and Sanchez in the same lineup every day, I'm most interested maybe in Greg Bird. I think, you know, I've always sort of liked him as a player, obviously his minor league track record, what he did in 2015, what he did late last year and in the playoffs. When I was making my top 10 first baseman list for MLB Network, I gave him serious consideration. I ultimately couldn't quite squeeze him in. There are a lot of good first basemen, but I do see him as someone who has the potential to be in that group. And I've read various rumors and people suggesting, oh, why don't the Yankees go get Logan Morrison or, you know, someone like that in that kind of class, but they have not done that. I assume that that reflects the positive feelings that they have about Bird. Do you think that this will be the year? Do they expect this to be the year that we see full Healthy Greg Bird, kind of you know, functioning at a, a 2015 level for a full year, or is that an unrealistic expectation?
2: No, I think they're super high on him for sure. I think mean, we always have been. So yeah, that he's going to get a shot this year. This is the ball's in his court. I think everybody knows what kind of player he could be. He was allowed to if he could just stay on the field. And you know, part of the pro, you know, kind of we we're talking earlier about changing beats. One of the things you do is you, know, you try to do as much homework as you can. He's obviously I haven't seen him play every day. You know when he broke in or whatever. I didn't see all that stuff. So, you know, I, I need to talk to people. I need to do some homework. And the thing that I kept hearing about Bird was mm-hmm. makeup. The guy wants to be great. And it it sounds you you should expect that out of all players. But the reality is, that doesn't necessarily always apply, all right? Especially with guys who have talent, because sometimes they can just get by on that. Greg Bird is somebody who works at it and truly wants to be great at it. And, you know, the other part of it is, he didn't seem phased by expectations of him, he didn't seem phased by the challenges he had to kind of get over. He's a mentally strong guy. I mean that's sort of just from talking to people that, that were around him, got known a little bit, you know, and that's not a small consideration when you look at the expectations they've got on him now, um, and certainly the belief that they showed in sticking with him. So I think, yeah, if folks want to be optimistic about Greg Burr, it's not a bad place to put that faith, mm-hmm. especially considering you see the raw tools, you see the talent. But I thought it was very interesting to hear all this stuff about him off the field, just makeup-wise, because. Uh, I think that stuff, while it's difficult to measure, it's impossible to measure. It's subjective and all that stuff. I heard it from enough people and people that I trust to put, um, I think, some faith in that evaluation. So, um, yeah, you know, I think he could be in for a, a big year if he stays on the field. Cause it certainly sounds like he's a person who's mentally prepared to handle whatever challenges get thrown at him this season.
1: Yeah, which makes it all the more obnoxious that there was some unnamed Yankees executive sniping about him in the press last year and saying he, you know, didn't want to come back from his injury or he wasn't trying to win or didn't want to be part of it or whatever, which was, you know, for any players, probably silly, but for Bird especially, just seemed misplaced. Anyway, hopefully he he proves people wrong this year if there are any doubters. So we always end these things with a win total prediction. So this is a a good way to make sure that your new readers again on the Yankees beat will have something to (laughs) cite back at you and hold (laughs) against you for the entire year if you get it wrong. So uh, what do you think? When I get it wrong. (laughs) Well, yeah, sure. Only one of our, our predictors actually nailed it last year so the expectation is is not that you will but uh what do you think is is their win total this season
2: 98 wins okay 98 wins all right yeah why not
0: (laughs) you got there Uh, faster
1: than anyone else yeah you had that ready to go
2: really yeah no i mean they're mid-90s somewhere that's like the more
1: no, no, oh, I 98. You said 98. Uh, I'll say 98. Yeah,
2: 98 for the record. No, That is my final answer, 98.
1: All right. Well, it will be a pleasure to read you all year long on the Yankees. You can find Mark on Twitter, of course, at Mark Craig. You can find him at The Athletic NYC. Good luck with new parenthood. Good luck with new slash old beats. And uh, enjoy spring training. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you very much. All right, let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Brittany Drohley of MLB.com to talk about the Baltimore Orioles.
3: In all the time that I've known you, never knowing that I let you
0: down, in the time desperation you stumbled, with nothing to show but these empty arms.
1: All right, so we are now joined by Brittany Drolly who covers the Orioles for MLB.com. She is still riding the adrenaline high of an intra-squad game in Sarasota, Florida. where huh. The Orioles just played some version of actual baseball. Hello, Brittany. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. So earlier this week, we talked to Chelsea Janes about the Nationals, and we made mention of the fact that overshadowing the Nationals offseason and really their entire season is the impending free agency of Bryce Harper. So I'm guessing that the same is sort of the case with the Orioles and Manny Machado, which obviously dominated a lot of the news and non-news about the team this offseason. Why do you think he ended up staying where he is for this final season? Do you think he will make it through this season and just how much of a a story will this be how many times will you have to write a a manny machado post this next few months
3: oh he's definitely a story i mean the second he walked in all eyes were on him this spring and you know it's gonna he's gonna continue to command a starring role one because he's a pending for agent two because he's really good now we had this conversation with buck the other day and we were kind of going through the list of of players and i mean i take machado over harper and i I don't think it's very i don't think it's close actually there's four or five players that I take over Harper. But when you look at a guy like Manny, it depends on obviously how the Orioles play. If they tank, he's gonna be a guy that's gonna be trade trade a deadline bait. But they didn't end up trading him because they couldn't get what they wanted for him. They needed to get back a haul if you're gonna trade a, a superstar like that. They wanted at least some young, controllable starting pitching. They weren't able to do that. Uh, but over the last six days, you know, they've been able to plug those pitching holes quite well. Now it looks like, hey, maybe they could surprise some people if their pitching does in fact hold up.
0: Well, yeah. So about that, uh, you know, it's a, it's been plugged. You know, Andrew Kashner is a real starting pitcher, and Chris Tillman has been a real starting pitcher. But you know, there's still an open competition for the number five spot, and there are a lot of questions about. Kashner and Tillman to say nothing of even Dylan Bundy's background. So clearly when you can start with Gosman, you can start with Bundy. You have a, a fair amount of talent there, but I don't even know where to, I don't even know what this question should be. They all seem so difficult, but I guess let's start with a potential ace. How far back has Bundy pushed the questions that have have circulated around his, uh, his durability? Because obviously he had a, a very strong season. Are those questions now just all in the past, or is this really someone that the Orioles can rely on for the season ahead?
3: Yeah, I think they're all in the past. I mean, you look at the guy, he's in great shape, strong guy, really takes care of himself. You know, it wasn't a matter of him being fragile or, you know, an unfortunate series of events. He got Tommy John. Uh, that was really the big one there. And I think last year kind of proved that. Not only is he durable, but he's kind of mature beyond his years. I mean, scouts were just raving about this guy, kind of pitching like a a 10-year major league veteran, and it's true. I mean, he doesn't scare easily. He's very unflappable, which you need to be when you're pitching in Yankee Stadium pitching at Fenway Park. I think Dylan Bundy is the real deal, and I think he's just going to continue to get better.
1: Yeah, and the Orioles rotation had the highest park-adjusted ERA of any rotation, even worse than the Reds last season. But the bright spot, I suppose, in the second half, at least, was Kevin Gossman, who really, if you look at his overall numbers, they weren't great, but he was just a dramatically better pitcher in the second half of the season. I think maybe he moved on the rubber. I know his release point sort of changed horizontally speaking. I don't know if there was anything else he did differently, but from your perspective, what was it that made him so much more effective? And is this the season when he will sort of stop tantalizing us and actually give us the the full season that people have been projecting for him for a while?
3: Right. Because this is like the second year in a row that he's, know decided to be a really good pitcher uh late in the season he I mean, did it two years ago uh as well and honestly guys i think a lot of it for a younger pitcher um is mental and i think kevin gossman is no exception you know when things are are not going well and, and not just with him with that whole rotation it was so hard for guys to go out there and go five innings that starts to wear on guys we've talked about when teams are pitching really well to kind of pass the baton mentality well but the Orioles, it was like, well, you go out here and try and get through five innings because nobody else can do it. Yeah. Kind of a here-we-go-again type of, type of feeling that you always felt you know, watching these games. And I think Kevin Goffman certainly victim to that philosophy. And I think a lot of it had to do uh, with what was going on mentally. I think his approach, you know, he tries to nibble a little bit too much. And you saw that. You saw him when he was good. He's throwing with more confidence. He's, you know, he's not afraid to challenge guys. And I think that's really the biggest difference with him. I don't think anyone questions his stuff, anyone questions his abilities. I think he has to kind of take a page from Dylan Bundy and develop a, a little bit better mound presence and be more consistent and able to withstand a bad first inning or, you know, a bad second or or a third go around in the order. He's got to be able to hunker down, and go deeper into these games.
0: I know so much of the story with the Orioles is, I mean, to their credit, they've, They've overachieved for a number of years now without really ever having a strong starting rotation. But when you look at the position player side, this team's going to hit a lot of home runs. I was running some numbers, and they're actually projected to be second in baseball in home runs this year, only two behind the Yankees. So I don't know if that's going to come true, but there's there's a lot of pop in this order. But I got to ask, I know Manny Machado is coming off a down season. I have no doubts about his skills, but what on earth happened to Mark Trumbo?
3: Right? Well, I think the real question is, he had that one good year, and the Orioles, like they did with Chris Davis, rewarded him with a contract that, you know, probably wasn't going to be matched anywhere else. You know, it's not really, not really a great move in my opinion, either one of those deals. But uh, the issue with Trumbo is he couldn't. He had a career year and just couldn't put it together last year at all. Never looked like that guy. And unfortunately, he doesn't have the defense where you're like, well, he still contributed. No, he's their everyday DH they don't really want to run into a situation where he's playing the field all that often. So he needs to find a way to turn it around. And if you talk to Trumbo, he'll just, he'll just say that, you know, he, he puts the blame on himself. He wasn't consistent enough. He wasn't focused enough. He wasn't getting those good at bats. But honestly, I think, you know, coming off that career year, two years ago, guys, it wasn't really a smart move to reward that guy with a long-term deal uh, given that you don't really have a position that you want him to play uh, I think, unfortunately, the Orioles caught a little bit of lightning in a bottle. And, you know, you expect some regression. You don't expect Mark Trumbo to be as bad as he was last year, and the same thing with Chris Davis. You know, it, but it's certainly, you don't expect him to replicate that career year. And I think that's unfortunately what happened when the Orioles went out and committed to him.
1: Yeah, we were talking to Mark Rigg just uh, earlier in this episode about how maybe some guys are not quite as well suited to the DH role for whatever reason. And there is sort of a a general slight DH penalty that you see across the league. But with some guys, it does seem to be bigger than others. And Trumbo has historically had one of the biggest differentials, I believe, between when he's playing the field and when he's DHing. Just on a career basis, he's got a 703 career OPS as a DH in more than a thousand plate appearances and then a 782 OPS as a non-DH. I don't know whether that is just a fluke, whether he's happened to have good years when he's been playing the field, or whether that does reflect something about how he feels or prepares when he is a DH. I mean. You're kind of stuck anyway, because you don't really want him in the outfield, even if he is hitting better. So I don't know that there's anything you can do. But I wonder whether that is an issue with him. And if so, whether there's anything he could do to prepare differently for that role.
3: I have no idea. I was going to say the same thing you did. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's great. Those numbers are different, but do you want? Who do you want him playing over?
1: Right. And, you know what I mean?
3: Like it's so. Yeah, I don't know what they can do there about that. To be honest with you, I mean, he's their DH. They don't have a. They don't want a scenario where he's playing the field every day. So he's going to have to learn how to acclimate to it, how to adjust to it. Uh, you know, these guys are professional baseball players. He, he's going to have to figure out a way to produce better than he did last year. Uh, I, I don't know what else I can say about that, quite
0: honestly. I know that on, uh, on the pitching side, there's not a ton of young talent at the upper levels. And on the position player side, there's been a lot of focus on Chance Sisko, who could get a chance this season to play fairly regularly as a catcher. But someone who I, I've i become very interested in, and unfortunately, it looks like his, his playing time has been a little squeezed out. But Austin Hayes was sort of in the conversation to be a, the starting outfielder, now with Colby Rasmus and Alex Presley around. Maybe that won't happen. But if the Orioles are going to have any shot of having a reasonable, presumably post-Machado transition, it's it's going to have to depend on internal solutions. And, and what is your read on Austin Hayes? I know he was only in the majors very briefly last season, but he had just a, a torrid campaign in the minor leagues. And he seems like he's really put himself on the radar.
3: He really has. Yeah. And I agree with you. He is a little squeezed out now because they did go out and get Rasmus. And you know they want to platoon that spot it looks like and I think in a perfect world they would like Rossen Hayes to go back and start the year to play Norfolk and maybe not sit on the bench as part of a platoon but he was impressive uh, in the short stint we saw him up here as a September call-up you kept hearing about him like you said had the best season really among any minor leaguer at any level uh when you look at what he was able to do and you know it wasn't that long ago that you know this guy was a just a, a high school athlete. So Austin Hayes is definitely going to be the future. He's going to play center field. Just a matter of when. Doesn't really seem like if. There's certainly more questions around some of their other prospects. Uh, Chances go is a guy that needs to get better at uh, doing some stuff defensively, at controlling the run game, things like that, ball blocking. But Austin Hayes. I mean, people just rave about him in the organization. Uh, you saw that arm a few times last year. Doesn't seem super phased. Kind of reminds me of Dylan Bundy in in that regard, and that, you know, going into Yankee Stadium and things like that, he didn't seem to, like, let the moment overpower him, so to speak. And Adam Jones loves him. And, you know, there are not very many guys that I think Adam Jones would be okay moving over and playing right field because we all know that day is coming. Adam Jones is getting older. He's not going to play center field forever. Um, Adam Jones would be okay moving over to play a corner spot for Austin Hayes. So that kind of speaks volumes about the impression that Hayes has made already in such a small sample size.
1: So there's a, a page at the website, Roster Resource, which is helpful. It sort of breaks down the 40 men's and the 25 men's of every team and how they were constructed and where those players are from. So there are two things about the Orioles 40-man that I want to ask you about. The first is the percentage of guys on the 40 men who were acquired as free agents. Now, the Orioles are at 7.3%, which is the lowest tied with the Tampa Bay Rays, who, of course, have never been a team that have signed a lot of free agents. They are tied for the lowest percentage. Just not a lot of free agents on this roster. That doesn't necessarily mean anything negative it could mean that you built a great homegrown roster or something but it could mean that you just haven't signed a lot of guys haven't spent a lot of money and that seems to be the case with the orioles right now they have a lot of payroll coming off the books with guys like gubaldo and hardy and miley and their payroll is down and i know there was some reporting over the winter about how they kind of passed on higher profile, more prominent pitchers, maybe because they were sort of scarred by the whole Ubaldo experience. But uh, did they come close to making any more sort of major outlays? I mean, we have joked on the podcast about kind of the, you know, stereotypical Orioles signing like February and it's not someone very exciting at all. And you just sort of expect that to be the Orioles MO year after year.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, they certainly did their due diligence with some of these guys, but you know they they don't like the price on an Alex Cobb and a Lance Lynn, and they just didn't feel like for how these guys have performed that they would be able to to earn that money. And you're right; I mean, they certainly were a little bit scarred from Evaldo Jimenez, the largest you know pitching contract they've sold out under Peter Angelos. So and let's not forget Ivani Gallardo was real bad as well. They committed multiple years to him. You know that contract. They ended up coming down on a little bit after they uh, went through the physical with him. But he was another guy they committed to that didn't pan out. And so, yeah, they're they're definitely wary. And, yeah, I agree. This slow offseason seemed just like a regular winter for the Orioles. They weren't (laughs) going to add. Uh, They certainly weren't going to hurry up and push the market. They were going to wait and hope that someone fell to them, which sometimes works out. I mean, they signed Nelson Cruz in February on a one-year deal. Yeah. Uh, You know, and, and he really went out and helped them win the American League East that year. But um, they looked, they did their due diligence, so to speak, but I never felt like they were going to go out there and get someone that fans were going to be, you know, yelling and screaming in the streets over. They were never going to get a a Jake Arrieta, you know, Cashner fits them, kind of fits their, their profile a little bit more. Personally, I like that he's a ground ball pitcher because, you know, watching these guys come over from the national league or watching these slide ball pitchers that they sign, it's just never a good idea when you're pitching in the American League East and you're pitching at Camden Yards, these guys, I don't care what kind of year they had for their former clubs. It just doesn't fit. So in that regard, I think Kashner's a a better signing than some of the other things that they've done in the past. But certainly they never got very close to answer your question on on any of these top guys at all.
1: And the other thing that stands out about their roster construction, 80.5% of the players on their 40 men are U.S. born. And this is another thing that has kind of characterized the Orioles in recent years. The average is 68.1% league wide. Only the Giants at 82.5 have a higher percentage right now of U.S. born players on their 40 men. Why have the Orioles not made any kind of investment really in the international market? I mean, if you want to point to a reason why they seem to have had a tough time developing players, That seems like as good a reason as any.
3: Yeah, Peter Angelus, the ownership doesn't think it's worthwhile. That is why they trade all those slots away. And Dan Duquette will tell you, he's said it on the record a few times before, but uh, that is why they do not get involved. Um, Uh,
1: How is that? I mean, how (laughs) how can you think that? I don't know. How can it like, you know, to just kind of rule out the rest of the world. I mean, look around rosters, and every team seemingly has talent from these markets. That the Orioles seemingly have just turned up their nose at year after year. It's perplexing.
3: Yep, I know. I agree with you, and I know fans have asked about. It. Actually, fans don't really ask all that much anymore. They're kind of used to it. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, Andrew gets pretty upfront about it. He's like, "Yeah, we are. We don't believe our ownership doesn't believe it's uh, worthwhile." So. They try to, you know, trade those slots away, get what they can for some of it. But yeah, it's, it's unfortunate.
0: I know that, of course, you only have a window into the Orioles. Really, this is clearly the team you, that you know best. But at least I have to imagine you've had some conversations with, with other writers. And what is, what is your sense of how involved Peter Angelos is with the Orioles relative to ownership with other clubs? Because, of course, there's the public perception. But is it different from how people perceive it to be or would you say that it's exactly as i don't know occasionally micromanagey, if you will
3: honestly i don't think there's that much micromanaging going on anymore i've heard horror stories from before i got on the beat um and i've been on the beat for nine years certainly i mean he's a lawyer things have to get approved by him uh, but his sons have much more influence much more say than they did before brady anderson uh, you know, has a real big part in things. He's the one who negotiated the whole Tillman deal, the whole Kashner deal. So I don't think micromanaging, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I don't think any of that, any of that stuff comes into play too much. Just the the broader things, like the international market, it is certainly where he has where he has a a heavy hand, so to speak.
1: And Buck Showalter hasn't managed a lot of teams that were in this position, seemingly. He's managed a lot of teams that were sort of on the way up and then a lot of teams that were winners. But he hasn't had a lot of opportunities to be with a team that I think a lot of people look at, us included, as a team that's probably not going to win for a while and probably not going to contend this year. And obviously, the Orioles under Showalter have, you know, have defied those expectations in the past. But temperament-wise... How is he suited to take over a team like this? You know, I, I guess he's sort of maybe loosened up a little as his career has gone on. He used to be portrayed as this very intense kind of perfectionist person. But is this difficult for him, more difficult than the typical manager to have a team that maybe is not quite constructed to take him back to the playoffs? Well,
3: they never look this at this point in the year to be constructed to go to the playoffs, do they? You know they don't, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I Honestly, don't. I think maybe from the outside, people I could see how you guys would say that, but I honestly didn't think about it at all until you just said that. They never are picked to be. Yeah. The playoffs. They're never picked to be good. They're never so. In, in that regard, this is no different than every other spring that I've been covering them, um, especially under Bucks. So really don't. There's any mentality change at all. I mean, they don't want to finish in last place. That was that was a bit of a, of an outlier. Bucks teams haven't really kind of quit like it seemed like they did for that final month of the season, but you know, they're never predicted to do good. So this really isn't any different than any spring training pass in terms of the window or expectations or, you know, never in February are we writing, Oh, this Orioles team's a heavy favorite to win the ALEs. You know, they're, they're not, they kind of acknowledge that role. And, and then everyone kind of says, Oh, they're not going to be very good. And then if they are okay, then they've overperformed, as you said. So, Really, they're in the same situation they've been in for the last four or five years.
0: So you uh, you were around, and I, I don't want to take anything away from uh, young Tobias Myers, who seems like a, a very talented, very low-level 19-year-old pitcher currently in, uh, in the Rays system. But Tim Beckham arrived last year for a, a very low price, one might say, and he'd... He, burst onto the scene, made an immediate great first impression with the Orioles. And this is a, it's a strange one because not only is he a middle infielder, but he's got three more years of club control. So it's just weird to see a team like Tampa Bay practically giving up on him. So have you been able to piece together why Beckham became so easily available when he did?
3: Yeah, I think he was pretty surly over there. I think he had had probably run his course. He was the, you know, the, the, the big top prospect. You know, didn't pan out as nearly as well as they had hoped, and you know, for a lot of those guys, it was similar. Like, why did the Orioles trade, trade Jake and Essentially, give him away. Uh, you know, these guys just run their course, in organizations and organizations need a fresh start. And you know, nobody thought he was going to have the August that he had, but certainly it looked like that's kind of what had happened in Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, you heard some things about him. You know, not you know, attitude wise, and, and he's been none of that. So maybe he did need that fresh start. I mean, he's been great. Um, you can tell he's energized, he's excited about the new position. He was the first position player here uh, down in camp. So uh, I really think that probably a lot of that had to do with just, you know, the player organization relationship and the fact that, you know, if Tim Beckham is, was going to shine, it wasn't going to be in Tampa Bay.
1: And so much of the Orioles' ability to exceed expectations, as we were just saying year after year, has been about the bullpen Can you give us the latest on Zach Britton? And if you have any insight into this, just, you know, is there something about the Orioles' ability to get so much out of their pen year after year, whether it's Showalter, whether it's something else, is that a replicable formula? Is there an an Orioles model to just finding guys like Michael Givens or, you know, Brad Brack or all these guys just year after year, Darren O'Day, et cetera?
3: Yeah, I mean, I actually talked to Zach today. He was supposed to throw last week in his boot. It was eight weeks post-off, but they thought they'd give it one more week just in case. So he did throw today. He can come back as early as, as the end of May because he's on the 60-day DL. So we'll see what happens there. But he seems fine. He seems like he's progressing pretty pretty okay. He's pretty upbeat about the whole thing. But in terms of their bullpen, that's 100% buck. Uh, he's talked about it a lot. The times when he was out of baseball, you know, when he was just talking to guys, as like an ESPN analyst, the, the one thing that he felt like all these former players said was like, you know what, like just the, the bullpen just gets overused. They warm up these guys two, three times in a game, then they don't use them. You know, they call it dry humping and they never use these guys. And they felt like that, that was just something that kind of graded on all these players. Players felt like they got injured. They were unable to perform. You know, they warm up three days in a row. Then the next day they ask the pitch and they're horrible. So it was something that Buck kind of always, you know, put under his hat. And when he got back into managing and, you know, when he came to Baltimore, it was something he wanted to implement. So they track all of that stuff. Buck tries really hard to not warm up a guy unless he's almost positive a guy's going to get in the game. They don't have two or three guys warming up at a time like you see some other teams and other managers do. And Buck's talked about it a lot, that these bullpen arms to them are commodities. They can't afford to blow guys' arms out. They can't afford to buy – more arms so they've got to, to maximize what they have and they've been really good at finding value I mean Darren O'Day was a waiver claim uh that was made really when they had no GM that was pretty much all buck Brad Brock is a guy who, who really couldn't put it together but mechanically when he worked with Dave Wallace Dom Chidi former pitching coach and bullpen coach they're the guys that were responsible for kind of ironing him out and they're also responsible for Zach Britton for really honing in on him as well They've got this mound in spring training that's set up with a bunch of strings that guys seem to like. You know, they try to avoid pitching it between these two strings because that's where, you know, the bad strikes happen. So it really kind of teaches guys to keep the ball down in the zone. It's something that really helped Zach Britton that year that he was out of options. Uh, the year he kind of became the closer, really resurrected his career. So it's a combination of things, but certainly Buck and that bullpen usage. I mean, they are very meticulous. It's part of the reason why they make so many roster moves because Buck refuses to abuse guys until they get to the postseason. He always says you got to save them for abuse until the postseason, and I think – A lot of that shows up when you look at the stats, and you look at the innings, and you look at the appearances, and how they've been able to keep that bullpen fairly healthy and away from a lot of arm injuries.
0: Are we allowed to still joke about how even in the postseason he's (laughs) saving relievers for save situations? I'll just just forget it. So last year, Chris Tillman, Chris Tillman was I don't I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school here. He was a disaster last season. First half his ERA was seven point nine. Second half he rallied. It was just seven point seven seven. He was a bad. He was a bad pitcher for nearly 100 innings, but he was re-signed by the Orioles recently. He's going to be their third, fourth, fifth, I don't know if it matters, starting pitcher, but got a major league contract, some millions of dollars and in some incentives. And I know from my own experience watching more of the Mariners and having seen like the decline of Felix Hernandez, it can be hard to have sort of your established ace go through something that where he just doesn't look like himself at all anymore. But clearly for Tillman to come back and for the team to want Tillman to come back, there has to be a a pretty positive relationship there. So how do the Orioles think that they can help Chris Tillman just put 2017 completely, completely behind him?
3: Well, the key is he needs to be healthy. I mean, two things. One, he started the season hurt. And two, he started the season out of shape. Those are two really bad, (laughs) bad scenarios right there. And he could never rebound. So they were constantly trying to rush him back. He never got that foundation, and you know a couple of the, his teammates were like, "Yeah, he was he was kind of fatting out of shape last year." So I think that's the key. Is the Orioles are just going to forget about it because they know he can be better. He's not 30 years old yet. He's not. He shouldn't be on the decline. They feel like there's no way he's going to continue to pitch at that level that he did last year. Now that he's healthy, he wouldn't admit he was hurt last year. They wanted to DL him a few times, but he really didn't want to go that route. He wanted to continue posting up, even though you can argue that really he wasn't posting up at all because he had such a, a dreadful year. But simply that's exactly what it's going to be. They're just going to forget about last season and hope he can revert to form. As long as he stays healthy, it's probably a reasonable request for him to at least be a three or four ERA type of guy.
1: Mm-hmm. So we always end these interviews by asking the guest for a win total prediction which has oh, been boy. very very dangerous for the Orioles in uh, <laughs> the last several seasons. So no one expects anyone to actually get the Orioles win prediction right, but we're obligated to ask. Oh man. <laughs> I'm going
3: to say 75 wins. Mhm. Yeah, okay. yeah. 75 wins. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's reasonable. Well, if I can ask a quick follow up, I mean, is 75, would you say if that's what it is, do you think that's going to be a a high water mark in the next, say, you know, three, four years? I mean, you've got potentially a lot of turnover after this season, guys who are reaching free agency, Manny Machado, Adam Jones, Zach Britton, like, you know, the foundations of Orioles winning teams are coming to the end of their time with the team potentially. So do you foresee that the Orioles kind of have the organizational will to embark on one of these full-scale rebuilds that we've seen with increasing frequency?
3: Well, they've only had really one huge rebuild under Peter Angelos. It's kind of been like a, hey, let's retool" type of team, but this is probably the year they're going to have to look at it and say like, are they going to actually blow this whole thing up or not? You know, I see 75 wins, but very easily, they could be a 500 team if Tillman reverts to form and Goffman and Bundy do what we think they're going to do, and Cashman turns out okay. It wouldn't surprise me if if they if they ended up being 500 and at least being competitive. But certainly, I think you're probably looking at the high water mark for the next couple of years, just based on what they're losing and the fact that they can't replace that that kind of talent in their system. There's no answer to losing Manny Machado, and there's no answer to losing you know Zach Britton and Broad Brock think there's a decent chance they keep Adam Jones but still there you know there are changes that are going to have to be made throughout this roster and I just don't think that when you look around the American League East that they can sustain being competitive without really taking a step back and saying, well, yeah, let's blow this thing up and we'll be good in, in four or five years.
1: Well, on that depressing note, we will let you go. And uh, <laughs> you can follow Brittany on MLB.com, of course. And you can also see her on MLB Network here on CBS Radio. You can follow her on Twitter at Britt underscore Thank you very much, Britt.
3: Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. You can support the podcast, keep us going, by pledging on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash effectivelywild and sign up. Five listeners who have already done so include Adrian Mahareb, Eddie Bajak, Tom Lloyd, Jesse Nix, and timothy west thanks to all of you you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on itunes thanks to dylan higgins for editing assistance please keep your questions and comments for me and jeff coming via email at podcast at Or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a patron. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will be back early next week with our next two team previews covering the Boston Red Sox and the Cincinnati Reds. A reminder, of course, you can keep visiting our sister site started by Effectively Wild listeners, Banished to the Pen, at banishedtothepen.com to read their written previews, which are going up on the same days that we are putting up these podcasts. We will talk to you all soon.
3: Amen.